Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Join me each week as we discuss both complex and everyday topics through a lens of science and logic. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hello, citizen scientists, and welcome back to this week's show. I'm Chris. And I'm Carrie. And this week, we are continuing our conversation about Sir Isaac Newton, the polymath, the physicist, the greatest person to ever inform science or whatever. (laughs) Isaac Newton in the house. Isaac Newton. And this week's episode is sponsored by Adventure Dice with awesome tabletop dice sets and custom chain link bags. Make sure you check them out at adventuredice.ca and uh, use the code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K, to get yourself a discount and help support the show. Who doesn't like discounts? Discounts are awesome. Who doesn't like dice? I Even if I didn't role play, I like role playing dice to just collect and roll for reasons (laughs) i didn't know there were so many dice until you made me play dungeons and dragons well you're welcome glad (laughs) i can give that to you (laughs) uh just a reminder we'll we are still running our patreon drive so you can pledge to support one two or five dollars at patreon.com slash dash of science and besides all the cool items the sticker sets the special content you'll be entered into our drawing for a 32 ounce stainless steel french press from coffee gator uh, so make sure you do that, and, and you can get in. Uh, we're running this until February. Uh, sometime in February, we'll be reading off the winner. So make sure you go and subscribe and get all your cool things. Yes, it's an amazing, uh, one of the most hardy French presses I've ever seen, that's for sure. Who doesn't want a French press? Yes, French presses are awesome. Uh, also, for those of you who listen who are uh, members of the federal government who are on furlough like myself or uh, have friends or family who are, Uh, At the website, I've been consolidating a list of links uh, for places that give grants, 0% interest loans, low interest loans, uh, and some stuff like that to kind of help you through the shutdown. Uh, You can check that out at dashscience.com. Just click on home and go to the first post. It's pinned at the top. You can't miss it. Uh, And I will be adding information to that. If you've got information that I don't have on there, please let me know so I can add it. Uh, try and look out for each other during this time of paused pay. We definitely need to look out for each other. Yep. Uh, we got two new reviews, uh, one on Facebook and one on iTunes. On Facebook, Chris Bratton says, uh, I think that's how you pronounce your name. There's two A's, Brayton maybe. Not only is this show entertaining, but you learn so much each time. Great job, Chris. That's awesome. That's a good review. That is a good review. Got another one on iTunes from Big Brother B. That says, when a show can be entertaining and informative, then it's a winner in my book. Chris gets great guests, and I learn something every time. Oh, you see, he likes the guests. Yes. Yeah, I love the show. So if you guys want to leave a review uh, anywhere on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Dash of Science or iTunes, you can search Dash of Science there. Uh, we greatly appreciate the reviews and the ratings. They help uh, get the show uh, you know, up on the like the new and upcoming and and ratings and and stuff like that and generally just help and and who doesn't like to hear good things about themselves and the stuff that they produce and even if you have you know some some corrections or some whatever that you want to say that's fine too you know what we would like (laughs) to fix our mistakes it is true i one thing about science is it's self-correcting over time uh and if you don't get those mistakes pointed out then you go along uh, assuming those things are true for longer which doesn't help anybody out is it me is it me that they're correcting all the time it is i knew it was me corrections i mean i know that we consider you to be the authority on all scientific topics on the show but you're not always right carrie I rock all that is science. (laughs) Uh, In other news this week, uh, we missed the super blood wolf moon lunar eclipse on Sunday. I knew about it. Because we were playing D&D. Yeah, when it went a little late that night, I forgot to check it out. It's something I noticed about that. It's kind of funny. I made a meme on Facebook uh, that kind of described it. But as the media was talking about this thing, uh, it got more ridiculous in its naming as time. Like it started off, it was the super moon. And then it was the super blood moon. And then it was the Super Blood Wolf Moon. I'm like, if this had gone on any longer, we would have had like 18 descriptors in front of this thing. Uh, it was rather ridiculous. But Why is it called a wolf moon? Just because they howl at the full moon? I don't know. I really don't. Um, 
I'm sure there's a reason, and I'm sure somebody knows, but Wolf Moon is just not part of my vernacular. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure somebody in a meeting somewhere was like, we're totally going to call it a Wolf Moon. Yep. Um, yeah, so there's that. I hope you guys all got a chance to see it from the pictures I've seen. that It looked pretty cool. Uh, there hasn't been one of that, uh, I guess, exposure here in the U.S., for about the last three years. From what I understand, it was good to see at a good time for pretty much all of Northern America. So, uh, like I said, hopefully you guys got a chance to see it. Uh, in other news, Earth's magnetic field has been slowly changing over time, and it's been doing that anyways, but there's been some unaccounted for irregularities over this past year, uh, which is something that I knew about from work, but didn't connect, if that makes sense. So, one of the programs we use for like monitoring uh, like satellites and stuff uses uh, a world magnetic uh, grid essentially it's a file that we get from people who make such things oh that's right and you said they update it all yeah, the time yeah they update it every five years because it naturally just deviates a little bit over time uh, but this time we had to do, uh, I mean, emergency isn't the right word, but emergency <laughs> code update red, code uh, red. of the file because it had changed enough that there was one to two degrees off in kind of the uh, northern uh, Arctic or, you know, areas. Uh, so it didn't really affect us down here where we were at, but they, they had us upgraded to them anyways. And uh, it's also good to remember these things aren't occurring like instantaneously this is migration that's happened over the past year or two uh that they knew about and that they've corrected for they just don't really always understand the exact reasons for specific migrations if that makes sense so you'll see stuff in the news about oh it's a magnetic uh flop flip flip flop Flippity, you know, flop, that, flop. that stuff happens and and you'll see oh we're due for one one was due over you know because we have it every so often and I you know I get in this conversation like that's not how statistics work right that's not how averages work when you take a thing and you look at how many times it's done something whether it's volcanoes earthquakes the magnetic field flipping uh, and you get a general sense of time about how often it does a thing but that's still an average right if you have something that happened every year for 10 years and then didn't happen again for 100 years, you're going to get an average that's far different than, you know, if they were all spread out, right? Yeah. So saying something is due to occur isn't exactly uh, accurate. We are not due for a uh, magnetic flip. It can happen. It can happen at any time within a very large range of times that we've shown historically, but... I don't know. I don't know why that always gets me. It just does with volcanoes too, and 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 like all those other natural disasters. It's because it makes them sound more dramatic than they are. Yeah. So what in your secrets, um, NASA sciency, do you need to use the magnetic fields for? Um, well, our system that we use it for uh, is for tracking like uh, headings, uh, airplanes, and whatnot, and for doing like two line elements for keeping track of where things are. Uh, we don't actually use it a lot, especially in that area for for what I do, but the program utilizes it. Uh, it basically uses it to help calculate the headings, essentially, is what it does. So are you saying, you said that the, the poles can flip? Has this happened before? Uh, not within the time span of humanity. No. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm less worried. <laughs> and even then, like if it flipped... Uh, what essentially the most part of what's going to happen is your compass is going to point south instead of north. I do use my compass all the time right. when I go out in all those trees we have and get lost. Yeah, there'll be some issues with navigation for, you know, a little bit. But like I said, it's not like a instantaneous thing that happens. It just starts to migrate slowly. And, you know, I mean, when it happens, we'll know over the course of some period of time that's not within seconds <laughs> i was hoping there was somebody up there that's going to be like oh no the poles have flipped nope nope that is not the way that it works that is not the science of it <sighs> science but anyways let's uh let's get on to our topic this week let's start Ooh, i know uh, this topic is isaac newton it is isaac newton we talked last week about kind of his early life kind of uh, the 1643 to 1661 ish time frame uh, until he turned about 18, essentially. So that's kind of where we'll start. We'll start a little bit earlier, but you kind of mentioned it before that uh, his mother summoned him back to be a farmer, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and this isn't, he wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life, but pushing a cart full of dung certainly wasn't like at the top of that list. <laughs> yeah, really smart people don't <laughs> yes. want to do manual labor. Uh, that sounds so like mean towards people who do manual labor, right? No, I, I didn't mean it that way. I just <laughs> meant nerds aren't really good at going outside. I disagree. I disagree. It's all with you. generality for joking's sake. <laughs> but, you know, it it certainly was accurate in describing Isaac Newton. Uh, you know, he spent his time letting his sheep wander aimlessly uh, while he was just building like water wheels and studying the flow of water. Like, he was such a bad farmer that he was constantly fined by the court for damage his livestock did to his neighbor's property. <laughs> That's <laughs> like his pretty fence funny. was always down. Uh, and eventually, like, uh, everybody's like, you know what? Maybe farming isn't for you. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah, We're done with so you. So when he was uh, about 18, his old schoolmaster from Grantham and his uh, uncle, I believe it was, who had gone to the uh, College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity at the University of Cambridge, basically got him admitted to start his lessons there in about, I think it was 1661 when he turned 18. So, yeah, he uh, that was the end of the farmer life for Isaac Newton, the farmer. Yeah, I can't imagine. I bet he would have made a really cool, like, uh, things that make the farm go easier, but I'm not sure that it would have been a very successful farm. It's hard to say because, like, I mean, he was all over the place with the, with his studies between theoretical and practical, and he did actually build, you know, like, sundials and uh, later on a telescope, which we'll talk about and stuff. But, like, a lot of his stuff was, especially early on, was purely mathematical. The mathematics of farming. I mean, yeah. I mean, that is what he was taught by his uh, headmaster, right? Like, math as it applies to farming. (laughs) Yeah, anyways, so the school system that he went to uh, was, of course, 100% based off of means and ability to pay, of course. And they literally divided students into three, for lack of any other better word, social classes. So you had, like, the nobles, uh, who, of course, had you know, ate at the high table and had very little actual exams uh, to earn their degree. Very frivolous degrees. Like, they just kind of showed up and were given a degree. Uh, (laughs) I wish it were that easy. Yeah. And then you had the pensioners who paid tuition and board, and they were predominantly there to earn degrees related to the ministry and to go off into the ministry. Uh, And then lastly, you had the Sizars, who were essentially indentured servants. Uh, They paid (laughs) for their schooling by being servants to the other students. Wow. I mean, they went so far as their meals that were covered were literally eating the leftovers of the other students. That's pretty lame. Yes. And of course, Isaac Newton, even though his mom was rather wealthy as a uh, recent widower, uh, obviously throughout her life has not shown much concern for Isaac. Sent him off with very little money. So he, of course, was a Sizar. Poor kid. Yeah. I, I just... It makes me laugh and cry at the same time that like this isn't just, you know, we talk about in society how there's an undertone of classism, right? But like this wasn't even an undertone. This was very blatant. Yeah, no. Well, (laughs) this is also the 1600s. It is true. I mean, at least they let him attend, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Right. They could have been like, you're not good enough to be here. Like, go back to farming. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much. Uh, Aside from his tutor. Uh, he spent his time mostly by himself. Uh, learning with him was kind of an obsession, if that sounds familiar, like Tesla. Uh, and then he spent a lot of time being paranoid, even at that age. Uh, and of course, not having much money for notebooks, uh, he developed kind of a shorthand to not only save paper, but also to encrypt his writings. They uh, always do that. Yeah, and he, and we talked about this last time he went, he just cataloged and wrote everything. Like, he cataloged a list of his sins. <laughs> I remember that list. Yeah. It's in the book I read, too. Yeah, so it's mostly, like, things like neglecting, you know, prayer or breaching the Sabbath. And I think he once confessed to unclean thoughts and described himself as wanting for money, pleasure, and learning, though the latter was the only one that ever really came in abundance for him, unfortunately. Right. Uh, but, yeah. So it was interesting time. One of those sins was the sin of burning his mom's house down. Yes, or at least wanting to. Uh, I don't know why that's so funny. I don't know either. I think it's not, it's, I mean, it's probably like an indication of very like traumatic experiences. So we shouldn't make fun of it too much. But I suppose, you know, 400 and some odd years 
uh, is enough time to pass that we can make a joke, right? Yeah, it's not too soon. <laughs> All right. Uh, but it was an interesting time with uh, kind of, we talked about the war in that area, the independent, the Civil War, I mean. Uh, I guess Cambridge had changed hands at least twice over the years prior to uh, uh, Isaac Newton showing up. And each time the new occupiers would rid the school of all the scholars from the other side. So they'd burn books, get rid of professors, etc. So that's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, that happens a lot in history. I mean, books are always the victims. It's very sad. I know they just burn them like they don't matter. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but in part because of this and also just because of the way like things were in education, uh, the curriculum had kind of become stale. It's mostly the same stuff that was taught. I mean, back even in medieval times, the single authority on all secular knowledge was still Aristotle. Interesting. Yeah. So Newton spent a lot of time reading Aristotle across numerous languages. And it's essentially like when you were done reading Aristotle's work, you moved on to reading other people's summaries and ideas of Aristotle's work. <laughs> like that was the wow. extent of most of the uh, curriculum at the time. Very well-rounded. Uh, yes. I mean, the biggest concepts picked up were basically uh, Aristotle's very good at systematic organization of everything, right? Uh, and the idea that properties can change. Uh, and, and Aristotle kind of put forth this idea that change is called motion that motion as an action is inseparable from time right Mm -hmm. so uh aristotle described motion as pushing pulling carrying twirling combining and separating so things from like peaches ripening was motion uh water warming on a fire was motion children growing into adults was motion that's pretty interesting yeah and even like you know an apple falling uh and this eventually led to the the conclusion that everything in motion must be moved by something right yeah uh, this led to the kind of an interesting notion of a first mover the thing uh, which was not in motion but caused the first motion and of course at the time this was obviously thought to be god right of course uh, and this has been used kind of as an example of demonstrating that pure philosophical thought can only get you so far in the sciences because that's where science started. It was just thought. They had no means of, you know, we didn't experiment, so to speak, at the time of Aristotle. Well, they didn't have any means to experiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that eventually through just pure philosophical thought, you're going to be subjected to error because you are self-referencing, right? You are, at a certain point, you are basing your your supposition on things that you've already determined are true based off of thought only right yeah that's not a good place to start right and so essentially you're only taking in information from yourself and that can lead to errors and obviously to to incorrect information obviously right so but the problem with uh kind of this over generalization this over generalized idea of movement Uh, is that it was kind of all-encompassing. So you couldn't make distinctions between, say, velocity, which is, you know, a rate of speed, and acceleration, which is a rate of change of speed. They were all clumped in with a whole bunch of other stuff, right, under Aristotle's idea of movement. That Uh, sounds like it's going to be difficult to do any sort of math for. You're absolutely right. Uh, This is fundamentally an idea that goes back as far as Greece, that geometry was kind of a thing of celestial spheres, right? It, it was for the cosmos, for the celestial space, uh, and maybe for music. But math, according to them, was inappropriate for using for things like projectiles. Interesting. Which is like the exact opposite of like today, right? Oh, like, yeah, uh, definitely. Most people who are artists and musicians, while mathematics is certainly a huge part of these things, most people in there don't have to have or even uh, want to have an understanding of the math on that level. Oh, Whereas not even close. Everything else, you know, for in science and mechanics and whatever is heavily math oriented, right? Indeed. So uh, this means that the technolog- the technological advancements at that time were purely made through trial and error with observation, uh, and that mechanics, as defined by Aristotle, was kind of rather worthless and not really practical. Interesting. It takes a lot to change something that's when you're the one that's making, like you're referencing yourself. 
Right. Like you can you can do whatever you want at that point. You could just be like, this is math. And they'd be like, no, it's not. And you'd be like, yeah, it is because I said so. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's part of the uh, benefits of uh, creating something yourself is you get to say what it is. But I mean, there was a logical basis for the things that were made. But I mean, this kind of brings up another point that I've made in the past uh, that understanding physics is a natural thing humans can do. And I don't mean theories and formulas and math. I mean motion and how things work intuitively, right? Yeah. Like shooting a basketball or throwing a dart or leaning into a turn all require that on some level you unconsciously understand and can work basic physics. That's pretty cool. I never thought of it like that. Hi, this is Two Girls on a Bench, the podcast. So we're two writers who tend to procrastinate just a bit. We like to snack. We like to talk. We don't have time to write, but we have time to do this podcast. We certainly do. Join us on the bench. Listen in. At number two, Girls on a Bench. That's Two Girls on a Bench, another great podcast from the Podfix Network. Check out that show and more shows like it at www.podfixnetwork.com. Now, let's get back to our discussion on Newton. We were also still in a time in which basically anything discovered or theorized still had to be held against like biblical beliefs, right? Oh, so yeah. everything had to be reconciled with scripture. Uh, and rarely was scripture changed to match observations of the world. I mean, yeah, keep in mind that even if you have a belief uh, in God in science, uh, scripture is still prone to mistake of understanding and interpretation. And there's no requirement to assume that scripture as we read it uh, is accurate above scientific observation. Now, obviously, for those who don't uh, believe in in religion or a particular god that's not an issue but i just there's always this line of science and, and religion that like i feel like you have to be pushed in in into one side or the other but if you separate the you know what is i guess created or delivered by man versus just the concept of a god there isn't anything in science that necessarily says that a God can't exist or does exist, right? Like science is completely like not at all concerned with the existence of a God, which is why you can have scientists who are religious. Well, it's because you don't need a God to have science. You don't need a God to have science and, and, and you can have a God and still have science, right? Because yes. science is, is concerned with the physical world. And obviously by definition, if a God existed, they would be outside of that physical world. Yeah, uh, very true. But this was still like the dawn of the a dawn of age when humanity started to question uh, the idea that the cosmos weren't this crystalline concentric sphere, right? That mm -hmm. was turning on itself, and more and more observations were showing that motions were way too irregular to fit into that construct. And uh, one of the most menacing to the accepted belief of the cosmos was just the existence of comets. Like comets, uh, uh, comets as observed. They just can't, without like some sort of magical uh, intervention, exist in the system uh, developed by Aristotle and Ptolemy. Why is that? Well, because comets, uh, well, if we go back to the model that was put forth by Aristotle, it's really this idea that Earth is at the center and there's this clear crystalline sphere in which the planets are embedded in that rotate around the, uh, the Earth, right? And they're mm -hmm. always there and they rotate. But comets, they come from outside of the then seeable solar system uh, and they appear and they pass by and then they go away somewhere. So if there was this crystalline sphere, like this should, this should strike into it, first of all. Second of all, there shouldn't be an outside of the sphere under this model. So where did it come from and where did it go? Where did you gotcha. come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so this is kind of, these things are starting to be observed. And even though comets were observed, like like ancient China and all this stuff, like it, it's just, you know, we kind of, what I was thinking about the other day, we kind of have this Eurocentric uh, version of history, right? Mm -hmm. And I understand why, because it was the Europeans that were primarily the last, uh, I guess, 
I don't want to say race or country because neither one of those are really correct, but I guess conglomerate of people to push out and colonize and move out into the other areas. So they brought their knowledge and imparted it to everybody else, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent. So that's kind of yeah. why we have that. But so it's, it's just interesting that, you know, I mean, that was going on. I mean, it was, it's even at this point when Newton was alive, it was over a hundred years since Copernicus detailed a heliocentric system, uh, and it only been about six decades since Bruno was burned at the stake for teaching it. You know, he was murdered basically by the church as a heretic for this idea that Earth wasn't the center of the solar system. I'm so glad that we don't do that to people anymore. You know, it's interesting when you look at, like, say, the Catholic Church, like how, I mean, it was only recently, like within the last decade or two, that they uh, officially, like, uh, reversed their decision about uh, Galileo and Copernicus. Like, I mean, really? they, I mean, on an individual level, like they accepted these things, but there had been church, like not doctrine, but church records of labeling them as heretics and not, you know, correct. And so there was basically, I mean, it's like an official apology, you know, uh, several hundred needed. years later. Sorry, we but, tried to burn you at the stake. Right. Uh, so it's kind of interesting how, you know, and this is an argument that I get with in, so like, I, I hate the topic of flat earth. I really do because I, I truly do. believe that the majority of people in the flat earth group are trolls and the rest have, <laughs> uh, and I don't mean this in a mean way. I mean it in an honest way. The rest have some form of, of mental disparity that makes them more prone to believing, uh, conspiracy theories in general right and that's a topic for a whole other thing but that's uh some brave words it is it is and i stick by them to anybody and and i know that offends people but quite honestly uh if you are that attached to the idea of flat earth you're probably not listening to this podcast anyways uh not anymore <laughs> not anymore yeah um but you know the idea I don't even remember how I got on this, but uh, so when we talk about like uh, kind of the trying to describe the motions of the planets, right? Uh-huh. Uh, before we accepted that the the sun was the center of our solar system and that orbits could be, uh, you know, ecliptic, uh, not in circles, we had to make everything fit scripture. God was perfect, therefore... Because circles are perfect, orbits must be circles. And we came up with, you know, these constant improvements of these systems to try and be able to predict and accurately display the motions of planetary bodies. And they were like circular orbits on circular orbits within circular orbits. Very, very complex mechanical systems that were near impossible to mathematically model at the time. Uh, and then till one day we decided to just accept that, you know what, maybe these orbits aren't circular. Maybe the they are ovals, right? Maybe they have different eccentricities. And once you do that, you come up with this marvelous, wonderfully simple mechanical system that's, you know, I don't want to say easy to model, but significantly easier to model than it is with all these circles upon circles upon circles. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the same thing with, with Flat Earth in that they take these... Uh, these little ideas and they try to prove them out mathematically and make the math work to prove this system that they want to prove, you know, independently of, of the world as a whole. And they'll do this to a bunch of areas and you can get this really complex mathematical thing that supports this idea of a flat earth in this one very specific context. But when you try to put all those things together, it doesn't work. It's a big, ugly thing. Yeah. Whereas if you simply take a model of the earth as a sphere and use that math, everything falls into place. It's what Occam's razor. Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, good reference there. You know, generally speaking, the, the simplest answers is the correct one. So, but yeah, so that was kind of a way sidebar. <laughs> yeah. That, that uh, was pretty far left. Yeah. So, uh, eventually kind of through the searching of the university's like 3000 books, uh, Newton came upon the work of Descartes and Galileo who, while both having drastically different views of the world, were still kind of comparable in how drastically different their views were from Aristotle's. Right. Yeah. So Descartes, uh, and I always want to pronounce his name Descartes. <laughs> Everybody does. But, uh, the French philosopher had a very kind of geometrical and mechanical philosophy, 
uh, and thought that the universe was filled with this invisible substance which formed vortices that the planets kind of floated along like currents in the air or the rivers. And I, I'm not sure if this is the origins of kind of ether if you've heard of that that like, oh, yeah i've heard of but, ether. but it's if it's not the origins of the same thing it's very similar in in the idea of how it works right yeah uh whereas on the flip side galileo subscribed to the idea that kind of everything in the universe was made of the same heavy stuff which should fall at the same rate right and uh-huh. we start to see the building blocks with which newton kind of forms his laws of motion it's important to remember too to keep in mind that the rate of fall is acceleration right so even galileo and his time understood that not everything fell at the same speed uh motion was a state of being not a process uh and so it was that he kind of not really newton was really the first who formed the idea that things stayed in motion or stayed motionless unless acted upon by something else newton kind of just did the math behind it and formulated it into a law interesting i didn't know that there was any sort of basis for that i thought he just made them up Yep. There were, I mean, he's when we talked about it uh, last episode about kind of like even with calculus, like there's a whole world of knowledge out there that leads up to things that you can just grasp and and take on to the next level, you know, and when you get outside of any form of organization that's forcing you to make your observations fit an already stated idea, it opens you up to to the next thing right and i think that's kind of what happened here like these ideas i mean lots of these ideas go back to uh you know like bc times or or greeks or whatever like with the atom but we'll talk about that later but i think i'm going to take the current knowledge and create a calculus three i've taken calculus three it was well then not as bad as calculus two but uh still worse than calc one calculus (laughs) four and what is calculus four going to be about um, it's going to be about shapes that haven't been invented yet. Okay. Well, I mean, you've got a, a long ways to go there because there's like hyper shapes, which are shapes that exist in more physical dimensions than three. So that's all right. Uh, in mine, I have 42 dimensions, 42 dimensions. <laughs> so we have shapes in 42 dimensions. Okay. And, and what do you call them? Blah. Did you just bought at me like a sheep? No, no, no. <laughs> it, it's blah. All right. Well, you have fun with that. (laughs) I'm going to talk about Newton's second year of university. (laughs) All right. On with Newton. Uh, So interestingly enough, when Aristotle began to kind of disagree with his teacher, not Pluto, Plato, (laughs) uh, he was quoted uh, as saying, Plato was my friend, but truth is my greater friend. Or something along those lines. Okay. So Newton copied that quote in his own notebook, but replaced Plato's name with Aristotle's. <laughs> uh, and in the new notebook, he kind of made the beginning of uh, new knowledge. He wrote down his entire knowledge of everything that he knew about how the world was organized under elemental headings and posted questions kind of both from reading and from his own speculation. And it really showed how little was known uh, before he broke everything down, I, I think he broke everything down right there in like 45 topics as the foundations of the new natural philosophy. That's pretty crazy. This was in 1662, mind you, his second year of university. That is uh, not what I was doing in my second no, year of me university. Neither. Uh, so he kind of broke kind of some examples. Like he called one like of first matter uh, of atoms. So Newton debated with himself whether matter was continuous or infinitely divisible or discontinuous or discrete. Uh, where where are the actual atoms like physical uh, and, and uh, or were they mathematical points since mathematical points lack like a body or dimension uh, they're just imaginary you couldn't think it was plausible that they would actually be able to exist and, and create matter uh, and he thought it was impossible that even physical atoms could exist in an infinite number uh, to combine to, to, to form some sort of matter with like real extension because they would be so small, right? Yeah, that is, it's hard to believe how many atoms are in your body. It really is. Uh, but he was also very aware that, that there's a kind of role of God in this subject could be very dangerous, right? God is the creator. Uh, and within his notebooks, you could see many places in which he kind of filled in God as like part of the explanation but then would cross it out and then write more like mathy things. <laughs> uh, kind of much like the Greeks, though, he came to the conclusion that atoms must exist uh, purely through elimination of every other alternative. 
Uh, and so it was at that point that Newton declared himself an atomist, which was a thing. I, I just find it interesting that it's kind of because math comes from like philosophy and you look back through like philosophy classes, you have the humanists and you have, you know, the, you know, whatever else, like there was atomists and it was people who believed that atoms were a thing. Oh, I've always been an atomist. Me too. Since day one. Like I was oh, really yeah. on the ball with that. I came out of the tube and was like, yep, atomist. Did you just say came out of, are you a test tube baby? I was trying to be discreet. Oh, <laughs> my bad i didn't mean to draw attention to that <laughs> uh but yeah it's interesting to note that even the belief that you know adams existed was contradictory uh to the church's beliefs at that time you know and even though the idea of adams date back to like 460 bc uh it wasn't accepted uh in modern like english philosophy until like the early 1600s and i think it was like a french catholic priest uh Cassendi, I want to say his name was. I'm sure but you're like, that wrong. You know how he made it acceptable? How? He declared that atoms were created by God. <laughs> and then suddenly everything was okay, right? That's <laughs> it's all clever. part of God's plan. Ta da! I fixed it. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, the next kind of area they wrote on was called uh, quantity and place, right? So uh, Newton kind of also struggled with the idea uh, of if space was finite or if it was infinite. And I don't mean like imaginary abstract space, but the real space with which we live. Uh, and and he, he got kind of, he thought it was, I guess, to say that the extension uh, is infinite, but uh, God is also infinitely perfect. And so we can't say that space isn't infinite because then we would be saying God isn't perfect. Like, that I don't know. Sense. It was a really interesting, like, it's hard because when you read a lot of, like, biographies and stuff, we'll put things in his own words. But his own words are modern translations of English, at the time, translations of Italian. And they don't always read clear. Oh, I bet. <laughs> like, there's a lot of extra words in this statement. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean that was pretty much his his thought processes on there at the time. But and then he started talking about like uh, time uh, and stuff, and it was interesting that his his section on time wasn't filled with like philosophical beliefs like the other sections were or physical questions. They were mostly just sketches of like water clocks, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, it kind of you know questions about what uh, what best materials made. Uh, the better water clock. So I thought that was kind so of So what exactly is a water clock? Uh, a water clock is a good question. Oh, look at that. I stumped you. You did. I looked it up and then I forgot to write it down. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, yeah. What would we do without Wikipedia? A water clock is any timepiece by which time is measured by regular flow of liquid. Wow, that was really specific. I was going to say that, but I thought that that was like too... I mean, I wasn't going to say those exact words, but I was going to be essentially it uses like water like flow to measure time, but like I thought that was a cop-out. Yeah, that kind of is. It, it turns out that that's just like what the definition is. <laughs> Way to be, Wikipedia. Let right. us down. Uh, but yeah, they're pretty old. They're from like 16th century Egypt, I guess, uh, according to Wikipedia. I don't know anything about water clocks, so do not quote me as an expert. I was just curious if it had to do with like rate of flow or if it had to do with like the mechanical moving of the clock was done by water or... Yeah, yeah it had to do with measuring uh, the flow essentially. But uh, let's go ahead and take a break and then we'll start talking about his last years of college. All right. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying learning about Sir Isaac Newton, make sure you check out the book by James Gleck, Isaac Newton, or the book Newton, Secrets of the Universe by Alexander Kennedy. Also, Isaac Newton, A Biography by Estefania Wenger. And lastly, Hourly History, Biographies of Scientists, which cover Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, Galileo, Charles Darwin, and Michael Faraday. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back from the break. Hey, the break Chris, of breaking. Yes. We came back from a break. We did. There was a break and now we're back from it. I'm just letting you know. I know, right? So, 1663, the last... Uh, Last years of college for good old Isaac Newton. I know what I was doing. Uh, I bet it's not the same. I guess I should say the last years of his undergrad. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, it really was kind of the study of Descartes uh, geometry that inspired Newton with a love of the subject and introduced in kind of the higher mathematics, uh, you know, books filled with things such as angular sections and squaring of curves. 
lines that may be squared. <laughs> I'm not sure I know what most of those yeah. things are. Uh, so they basically call themselves so, uh, several calculations kind of about musical notes were in there as well. Uh, and geometrical uh, propositions that combine them with observations on refraction and on the grinding of spherical optics. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is his notes were all over the place on Sounds multiple like different topics. Uh, and uh, he talked about like the errors in lenses and the methods for uh, rectifying them uh, and the extraction of all sorts of like roots. Like, Didn't he do something with prisms too? He did, and we'll get to that. Uh, d definitely a thing that a lot of people forget about because they think of him more as just as relation to gravity, right? Is math man. Math man. You well, know, it's a term from the era that I really love is polymath. Interesting. Are you familiar with that term? I think I've heard it before. It's basically, it's just like Renaissance man. It's a guy who, or gal, I guess, who knows like a lot of stuff for their time, like more than significantly more than the average. They know a little bit about everything essentially. So I always thought that was interesting, an interesting term. It doesn't sound cool. Like, I'm a polymath. Okay. It sounds like you take a lot of math. <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, I take uh, multiple maths, uh, which is true. I did. So I uh, I guess under that definition, I am totally a polymath. Well, then I'm a polymath, too. <laughs> oh, there you go. But, uh, so in the years of 1664 and 65, he discovered the method of infinite series, which we call the general binomial series. Uh, just discovered it while he was bored. What is that? Uh, so it's an algebraic expression of the sum or differences of like two terms, right? So if like 3x plus 2y, or like more specifically, an example would be like 3x minus 2y and all of that raised to the 10th power, right? If you were to multiply that out by hand, it would take a while. Uh, so the binomial theorem is simply a formula that kind of allows us to do that quicker. Oh, I totally thought that. Yeah, I know. You're you're right on it. I was just putting it in words for you. Thanks, thanks. But uh, it also kind of leads up to Pascal's triangle, which is kind of a cool little looking thing. It's kind of like a an array of numbers if you write them uh, in a triangle, starting with one at the top, right? And then you write one, one, and then it'll be one, two, one. So if you see it on paper, every number is just the sum of the two numbers above it in the triangle. I totally have seen that before. Yeah, so that's the uh, Pascal's triangle. It's pretty interesting. But yeah, and then, so that's just one of the numerous, and he also like calculated the area of a uh, uh, hyperbola. No, I, nothing. I do that all the time. Yeah. You know what that is? I know what a hyperbola is. Okay, just checking. Wait, have you ever seen the uh, the conic sections, Des description of circles, uh, ellipses, parabolas, and hyperbolas? No. It's really, I actually drew one to show you because I think it's really cool. So that's not it. I might not have it. <laughs> He's just giving me random paper. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's the one that I started drawing, but then it's not as cool as the one that I actually drew that was like all of it. Well, whatever. If you imagine, so here's enough of it for you can see. You, you have a, a 3D cone shape. Is it is it this thing over here on the table? Oh, yeah, it is. I totally found it. Yeah, I put it in front of you so you could see it. So if you take, uh, the, basically it's two 3D cones uh, that are flipped at their apex, the point, you know, where a cone comes down to a point. Uh -huh. And you flip and mirror it across that, so it's two coins with their points touching. Uh, and if you take a cross-section of that horizontally, uh, where your plane and the cone meet will be a circle. If you tilt your plane at an angle over one of them, you'll get basically an oval. And if you cut the cone just the top half, you'll get a parabola, and if you take it and you cut both the top and the bottom half, you get a hyperbola. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know why that amazes me so much, but it does. <laughs> Never would have got any of that from what I'm looking at. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Come on. That's an amazing drawing. I it, It's something. I'm going to have to take a picture of it now and put it on Twitter. But yeah, so that's what he was doing in like his spare time, uh, much like all of us. Totally. So 1665, uh, Isaac Newton earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from Cambridge. Uh, curiously, the records of the merits of candidates for that specific year are missing from the records books. That's so weird. Yeah, but considering like he discovered an infinite series and began to invent the concept of derivatives uh, at that same year, I think yeah, something he called fluxions, which I think is funny. That is very uh, funny. But I think we can all rest assured that the degree was probably well earned. Right? They yeah. were like, um, you can't do English, so you are not <laughs> going to graduate. Right. 
Uh, so this kind of brings me into the story of the apple, right? Everybody knows the story of the apple. You remember the story of the apple? I do remember that What's story. What's the story of the apple? Um, that he's sitting in his garden alone, mm-hmm. and the apple falls and hits him in the head, and he's like, oh my god, it's gravity. Right, a eureka moment. Not accurate. Uh, so among everything else, Newton was obsessed with the moon and the earth relationship. And it was really this relationship that got him thinking about the idea that gravity must extend, like, past Earth, right? Uh Uh-huh. And it was during his time away due to the plagues that you mentioned last time. The Uh, dirty plague. (laughs) Yeah. He spent his time at at Woolsthorpe, I think it's called, Woolsthorpe Woolsthorpe Manor near Grantham in Lincolnshire. Uh, All words. Uh, Good job, honey. Good (laughs) job. Which had apple trees, right? And so the story itself actually comes from writings from a younger contemporary, uh, and those writings are actually in the Royal Society archives uh, that describe how his younger contemporary and Newton went to share a drink under the shade of some apple trees, uh, and at this time he began to explain his ideas of gravity and that he was once sitting in another uh, apple orchard where he was thinking about apples and how they fall and how they always fall straight to the ground. Never at an angle, but always like the most direct path from where they fall to hit the ground, right? Uh Uh, And this really was the kind of the basis of fueling his ideas about his theory. Uh, You know, and that was it. There was no like dropping on his head. There was no whatever. It's just kind of an anecdote. Uh, And many people kind of wonder... if even that much of the story was true because he liked to kind of tell and he kind of embellished it as time went on over the years, you know, even like 50 years later. But I mean, it's, it didn't hit him in the head. We know that much was true. Well, they always say if a story is good, then it has some sort of exaggeration. Who's they? I've not heard that. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> it, it sounds legitimate though. Like I would believe that. <laughs> I think my grandma told me that. Oh, your grandmother is a very wise person. So yeah, that was the story of the apple. That was really it. It wasn't even like, it's not even that great of a story. It wasn't like a, a flash where he just suddenly understood everything about gravity. It's just like, oh, gra- apples fall to the ground and always straight down. And then like, you know, months or maybe years of thinking about that and defining his theory. It wasn't like, uh, wasn't the apple that just jarred his brain and, and all these equations popped into his head, right? I thought it was, you know, side effects of a concussion. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, 67 of that year, uh, he was elected as a fellow at his college. All right. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Uh, and after that, he left for Lincolnshire for like five months uh, and then came back and earned his M.A., All right. (laughs) He was just like, I'm back. Hand it over. Yeah, exactly. Um, But yeah, this is also, I think, uh, I'm trying to think of the time frame here. Yeah, when he left college due to the plague, let's see, he did a series, calculated the area of hyperbola. And I think this is when he really started to like first developing his laws of motion, even though he wouldn't like present them in his publicized book for like 30 years. That's crazy. Uh, So yeah, this is, he was like 23 Right. And an era that still thought Roman roads were like the most awesome technology. <laughs> and I just I can't get over that. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Like he's just like, I'm making it math and nobody can stop me. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's not wrong. <laughs> so he gets back and he's been he's working as a fellow at his university for like two years. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and throughout these few years, his studies were kind of diverse. You know, this is when he started playing with prisms and light as well as like pure mathematics and uh he i guess he kind of wrote this paper which roughly translates to the analysis by equation uh like i said the translations are horrible i know that sounds uh, so exciting doesn't it basically he kind of talks about his fluxions or derivatives if you have taken calculus and know what derivatives are um i know that the one equals zero (laughs) okay uh so basically, it's his invention of derivatives, uh, and he kind of shared it with his friend Isaac Barrow, uh, who was the Lucasian professor of mathematics, uh, who then communicated it to John Collins, who was a very well-known mathematician at the time, uh, but he left Newton's name off of it, which I thought was interesting. That's pretty shady. Well, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a to like claim credit. It was he was just like this person, this friend of mine who's staying at Cambridge came up with this, right? Oh, okay. Uh, and once Collins kind of responded favorably, Barrow told him who it was. It says, you know, it's a young man by the name of Newton who's only in his second year after getting his MA, uh, and you know, then shortly after that, like retired. 
and was like instrument in instrumental in getting Newton appointed as his successor. I can't imagine being like that good at something that I show something I've done to an expert in that field and they're like, well, I'm done. Take my job. Right. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. So it was in October of 1670 that uh, Newton was kind of elected the location professor. Uh, the location professor of mathematics is kind of a very specific chair at the University of Cambridge in England. It was founded in like 1663. So Newton was actually only the second person to hold this position after Isaac Barrow. But I mean, this is a position that was like officially established by King Charles II. And it's kind of one of the most prestigious academic positions uh, in the world. Um, That's pretty amazing. Yeah. After Newton, it was held by a lot of notable mathematicians and scientists. I bet know. I know them all. I, I bet you might. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Uh, I'm not going to go over all of them, but there's like four or five that are pretty noteworthy. There's uh, Joseph Lamore. Nope. So he's a physicist and mathematician who made kind of great strides in understanding electricity and dynamics and thermodynamics. And he discovered what is called the Lorentz transformation. Are you familiar with that? Um, no. So you know how previously we talked about how there's different uh, reference frames? Yeah. Inertial reference frame. So the Lorentz transformation is a kind of like a, a single parameter family of linear transformations. Essentially use them to convert from coordinates from one frame in space and time to another coordinate system. All right. In different reference frames, right? It's the math you need to use to take something from one reference frame and apply it to another one. Interesting. So, yeah. So pretty important stuff. Uh, next is Charles Babbage. Nope. So he was an English polymath and an inventor. Uh, and he's kind of often thought of as the father of the computer because uh, he was the first to really conceptualize a digital pro programmable computer. And he did it back in the 1800s. Oh, that's pretty cool. Like right? he was only limited by his resources at the time. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, we had analog computers for so long before digital ones. But even before analog computers, he was really he was predicting digital computers. Uh, there's uh, George Stokes, actually Sir George Stokes, the first baronet. <laughs> baronet? Yes. Uh, this like a, uh, what do they call it? It's a form of knight. It's like a really low level of nobility. Uh, but uh, he was Irish, if I recall. But most of his contributions were in fluid dynamics, and he is the Stokes from the Novier-Stokes equation. All uh, right. If you know that one. Nope. That's oh, interesting. <laughs> it's like you never took advanced physics. I know, right? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, this basically describes like motion in a, in a viscous fluid. Uh, it's kind of the basis from every mathematical model of fluid flow, from like weather models to ocean currents, uh, design of power station. I mean, it is one of those fundamental math things that just everything needs. That sounds interesting. Yes. Uh, let's see. Paul Dyrek. I definitely don't know that name. Yeah, I know it was equations, but I don't, I don't know. It's been a long time, <laughs> but I don't use this stuff anymore at the moment. So, but he was an English uh, physicist and kind of the one of the most significant ones of the 20th century, mainly uh, for his contributions to quantum mechanics. Uh, and he created the Dirac equation, uh, which is a relativistic wave equation that kind of describes uh half spin massive particles like electrons and, and quarks etc oh i totally knew that yeah, one so very important and the last i'm going to mention is of course stephen hawking hey i know that one yeah, we learned about him uh two weeks ago so like i said this is like this is a very prestigious uh chair to hold and sounds the, like and it people who have held this position have really fundamentally changed and advanced our understandings of the physical world do you uh, think they'll let me hold it after I come up with Calculus 4? Uh, I don't know. It's worth a shot. We'll see how it works. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so part of his requirements uh, for for holding this chair, essentially, that he has to lecture on a subject uh, from, like, a list of subjects. So, of course, being, like, a master mover in the field of mechanics and pure mathematics, he chooses to lecture in a third different thing. <laughs> Sounds about right. Which is optics. Uh, and during this time, his lectures were kind of sparsely attended. I guess people weren't interested in them, or maybe he wasn't a good lecturer. I don't really know. But uh, luckily, it gave him plenty of time to kind of uh, work with, uh, with, with light and stuff. And this is when he kind of developed the first practical reflecting telescope. That's pretty cool. Have you ever used a reflecting telescope or a refracting telescope? Those are pretty much two basic kinds. I am not sure. I know I have used telescopes. I've used like home ones to look at planets. 
Yeah, those are usually, uh, well, I guess it depends on which one, but the cheaper ones uh, are usually reflecting telescopes. Uh, but kind of before this, the only the refracting telescope existed, which kind of it collects light in a lens, uh, and that lens magnifies it within the path of the light. Uh, so it means that you are basically sitting at the end of the telescope, uh, looking in at least the original ones, and so they tend to be a lot longer to be more powerful, and they become really unwieldy, and they suffer from something called uh, chromatic aberration. Oh, which what's is that? it's basically where a rainbow of colors will appear around the image that you're looking at. Oh, that would be annoying. Yeah. So the reflecting telescopes are open on one end and they collect light that then reflects off of like this curved lens uh, onto a mirror that kind of again reflects it 90 degrees into an eyepiece. So the eyepiece for them tend to be kind of towards the top and on the side. So the downside is when they're bigger, you have to use like steps or a ladder or something to get up to the eyepiece. Uh, but they are capable of being much bigger and much cheaper to make, and they don't suffer from that uh, chromatic aberration like like the refracting telescopes do. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it was kind of uh, it was kind of in this time, this 1670, 1671, that he was proposed as a candidate for admission into the Royal Society. What's uh, that? By Doctor Seth, Bishop of Salisbury. And sounds so official. Elected, and he was elected uh, as a fellow in January 1672. Uh, the Royal Society is, I mean, it's like a prestigious society for like scientists and whatever. I forgot. Well, to put, I figured that much. I forgot to put the when it was created. You're failing us, Chris. <laughs> so this was it was founded in 1660. So not very long before uh, Newton became a part of it, right? And uh-huh. It was granted a royal charter by King Charles II. Uh, as the Royal Society, it is the oldest national scientific institution in the world. Pretty cool. Yep. So there you go. It's again one of those things that uh, some of the more prestigious scientists and mathematicians and stuff. Who else has been in it? Uh, Stephen Hawking. Oh well, there you go then. <laughs> uh, Isaac Newton, J.J. Thomas, Stephen Hawking, uh, a person who I can't pronounce his name and don't know. Uh, yeah, so the, again, same types of people, only more of them than have held that chair, because obviously that chair is a single position. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah. Uh, so 1671, he was proposed as a candidate for admission into the Royal Society. Uh, and in January of 72, he was elected. It was kind of interesting because like the day he was elected in, he read a description of his reflection telescope. And kind of it's part of the invention that led to his fellowship in part. I mean, obviously, the other things he did were, you know, used to kind of justify it. But in response to his letter of acceptance, he like immediately asked for a meeting as soon as possible so that he could brief the society of a, quote, philosophical, end quote, discovery that led to his invention. And basically that the invention itself pales in comparison to this discovery. Oh, yeah? What discovery was that? Well, uh, the philosophical discovery was read two days later in front of the society, so they were impressed with him enough to grant him, like, an immediate uh, reading. Uh, And his relation was that white light is composed of a spectrum of colors, uh, that objects only have color because they absorb some of these colors more than others. That's pretty cool that he figured that out so early on. So this is kind of what led to the understanding of the flaw of refraction telescopes uh, because the light is a mixture of different frequencies, like each color. To truly focus a lens for refraction of a single color makes it less focused for the others. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, And it was really uh, the publication of these ideas along with his theory of color, they led to a series of controversies which lasted several years between Newton and, like, Robert Hooke, Anthony Lucas, uh, and Linus, and kind of a few others, which we will talk about next week, because that's all the time that we have this week. Wow, that went by fast. Yes, it did. Uh, Newton is an amazing and interesting guy. He sure uh, is. I look forward to finishing off next week with uh, the remainder of his awesomeness. More Newton to come. (laughs) All right. Catch you guys next week. Bye. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, you can check us out on Twitter at PhysicistChris at Facebook.com slash Dash of Science. You can check our occasional live streams at Twitch.tv slash PhysicistChris. 
Uh, you can chat with us on Discord. Links in the show descriptions. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dash of science. Remember, we're still running that Patreon drive. Uh, and for your chance to win a 32-ounce stainless steel French press from Coffee Gator, make sure that you uh, go in and support us through Patreon uh, before February 7th. And, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, comments, uh, suggestions, you can email them to me at chris at dashofscience.com. That's all for this week. We'll check you out next week, or you'll check us out next week, whichever works for you. Have a great rest of your week, and remember, live, learn, build. Dash of Science is written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music for the show was written by Ghost 2 Productions. This podcast is a member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.